I'd like you to open your Bible to John 17 and Ephesians chapter 4. Now, our subject is union with Christ. Union means oneness. It means being together. Union with Christ. Concerning this oneness, Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That would include us. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as... We are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That's a tall order. We've been speaking about that for the last three weeks, about union between a man and God, oneness. Not a mental oneness, but a life that is in agreement and in harmony with the Lord. To look at it closely, went to Ephesians 4, if you'll turn over there, in Ephesians 4, where he describes, at least in one section of the Bible, how he's going to bring this about, because it's hard for me to imagine, especially in a church like this one. I mean, most everybody here came from somewhere else. Very few people here are from Shelbyville. I, along with most of you, we came here from other parts of the country, came from the south and the east, the north, the west. We came from all over. We're all so different. We learn to do things so differently. Our, our ideas about how to conduct a religious service are different. And some were loud, some were quiet, some were more this way, some were more that way. And they all came together, and it's not easy because everybody sees everybody's faults or what they think are faults. And God puts one thing in front of us that is supposed to bring us to oneness, that one thing he put in front of us is what the world says can't make us one, and that's doctrine. Because the one thing we all must conform to is the Word of God. And we really can't conform to the Word of God unless we know what it means. And therefore, in verse 11, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, as I've described these as anointed ministries. Not just a seminary student or somebody who likes to preach or wants to preach or has a zeal for that, but somebody God has sent. You can't learn an anointing. You can't hire an anointing. You either have it or you don't. God gives it. And the purpose of this anointing is in verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we looked at what those three things mean. That there is a work that needs to be done in us. Something has to happen among us that changes all of us from the way we were into the way that the Bible says we should be. Now, if you're willing, that'll happen to you. If you're stubborn and stiff-necked, you won't, like the Bible describes so many. They have a way they want to do it. They have a way they see it done. They're not going to change. Nobody's going to change. But when God begins to affect a man's heart begins to soften those stubborn areas of our life. When the Word of God finally becomes a revelation and not just an academic word in the Bible, I believe that, well, good. 
But sometimes it takes a revelation so that you can understand what that means and see it. No man can do this. Only God can do this. That's why I've said so many times, don't believe it because I've said it. I don't ask you to believe anything I say. But you search the scriptures and you see if the scriptures say the same thing. Because one thing we are all in this room obligated to follow is the word of God. Nobody is free from that. And the word of God is of no private interpretation to anybody. It says one thing. It doesn't say two things. And we must strive to understand that and to seek to know what that means. Or as Proverbs says, get knowledge. And with all your knowledge, get wisdom. Because that's how you apply knowledge. But in all of getting of that, get understanding because that's what makes it clear. And when you go, oh, I see what you're doing. Then you have a purposeful walk. Because you know where you're going. You know what you're doing. God has revealed it to you. It's Ephesians 1. That God would give to the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of our hearts, that inner man that sees spiritual things would be enlightened that we may know what God has for us and the way God wants us to go. This is how he makes us one. Not by religious services and busy activities in the church and new movements and new ideas and stuff. It's with this timeless, ageless word that will never change. This is what God uses to make us one. And he only does that as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. That brings us to verse 13, to a perfect man. I think that verse 13 begins with the word till. I think I said this last time. You've got to have verse 11 to have verse 12. Are you with me? You can't have verse 12 unless you have verse 11. You've got to have something that God anoints in order to produce something in us that leads us to verse 13. Verse 13 says, till we all come. So I would assume that the work that is taking place in a church or in a body of believers is verse 11 and 12 because where we're headed is verse 13. And our desire is verse 16. A functioning church does what it says there. We'll get to that in a minute, I imagine. I hope so. But we ended last week in verse 13 after we talked about the unity of the faith, which is twofold. One is the doctrine of the Christian faith. What does the Bible say about how we live, how we do things? The Bible describes it to us. That's what somebody must teach us. Didn't God put teachers in the church? Doesn't matter who the teachers are. If they're not anointed, it won't work. If you're not anointed, it still won't work. Some people have eyes to see, but can't see. He tells us that we not only are brought together by doctrine, but also we're being taught to trust God. The unity of the faith is that we have learned that one God can be trusted. That he is a limitless God. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no hurdle he can't climb. No mountain is too great for God. No human frailty, no human flaw, no human problem that God cannot fix or meet. The problem when things don't work as they should is never because God just didn't want to. There's always a problem with man. God is not like a man that he should change his mind from what he has said. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. He said he watches over his word to perform it. And he said that the word that has gone out of his mouth shall not return void, 
but it shall accomplish that which he pleases. It will prosper in what he sent his word to do. That'll be forever. That'll never change. That's a timeless word. We need to come into the meaning and the depth of all of that so that we can experience that. When the Bible says it shall be well with you and your children, that's the way we should live. We're not supposed to just sing songs about that and be glad that we can quote that. But that's the way it's supposed to be in the reality of our life. This is our testimony that God has blessed us, not because we joined some church, but because we've made application of his word as he's revealed it to us. And the more we do that, the more we're learning that God is to be trusted. I'm glad the world is full of other things that men can turn to because if there wasn't, most Christians would perish. I'm glad there's hospitals and doctors. But God has something better. You may not get it right away, but God has something better. He really does. And that's his word. Because he said concerning his word, he watches over his word to perform it. Now, the second thing I mentioned in closing last week was about the knowledge of Jesus. Remember, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, who he is, what he does, what he's willing to do. There's no two ways about it. He is what he is. He said he'll do what he said he will do. And we finished at the third part of that in, in verse 13, and that's to a perfect man. To a perfect man. Now, what is perfect? Well, our English word perfect is a lofty and pretty classy word because it means incapable of improvement. If you're perfect, you're done. But the Greek word from which this English word perfect is translated is not like the English word for perfect. It's a word that can be translated mature, having reached your end. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, he said, on the third day I shall be perfected. Well, he was already perfect. How can you perfect that which is perfect? Well, you have to know what the word means. And the Greek word perfected simply means, you could interpret, and on the third day, I will have accomplished what I was sent to do. I will have done what I was sent to do. I have reached my intended end. We have one too. Did you know there's a reason you're in here this morning? Do you know there is a life that God wants you to live? And did you know that it is supposed to arrive at a certain place? There is a way you should be when you get there and God never leaves you alone so that you remain throughout your life as you are. There are too many people that got saved 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that have never changed. You still can't get along with them. They're still hard-headed. They're still difficult. They still make you uncomfortable. They've never changed. They never have been able to fit in anywhere. Because this work of God has never really taken place in their life. They've memorized the Bible. They preach sermons. They do a lot of things. But nothing's ever changed. The heart has never been made compliant with the Lord in the way that he wants. I think the word perfect means that it refers to a person who in a body of flesh, in an evil world full of temptations and woe has overcome all the obstacles and has become the kind of man or woman that God said you should be. That's a perfect man.
we're all capable of being tempted. We're all capable of being flawed and failing and falling. A righteous man often falls. But a perfect man who is one who in the midst of this corrupted world, Jesus said, I leave you in the world. Not taking you out, but I'm leaving you here. And in the midst of all of this confusion and wickedness and lust and ugliness in this world, there are those who are more in tune with God than they are of this world. They got their hands on the plow. They make an application of this word in their daily life. They overcome all the obstacles the devil throws in front of them, all the confusion and the excuses that so many make for not going on. They overcome. They rise to the occasion. They trust the Lord. Take him at his word. And they overcome. And God brings them to the kind of place he wants them to come. And they are the kind of people that God wants. He says to them at the end, well done. Thou good and... Is faithful still in the Bible? Okay. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter you into the joys the Lord has prepared for you. I hadn't seen mine. doesn't even have an idea of what God has laid up in store for people like that. It doesn't look so much like it now. We wonder why God didn't do this. Why didn't he do that? I don't know how much longer. Oh, Lord. But some folks have this grip on God. They've been accosted. God has his hands on their life. And they're unwilling to look back, long to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt or whatever Lot's wife left in that ugly place. They look straight ahead, face like flint headed towards the kingdom of God. God has so affected their inside, the heart, how they see things, how they deal with problems in life. They don't fall apart anymore. They're not on the phone calling people anymore. They're on their knees praying now. They found a solution. They've never seen his face. They've never heard his voice, but they believe his word. And God is doing a perfecting, cleansing work in these people, bringing them to the kind of place he wants them to be. Turn to Colossians 1. You're only a couple books over from it. Look in Colossians chapter 1 and what Paul said about this idea of being perfect. Verse 21 and 22. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to do what? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How can that be? How can a human being, especially in this age, become so right with God that he has nothing to be unreprovable, unblameable? How can it be? Because Jesus is able to do that. Now, not everybody is willing to have that done, but for those who are, this is what's going to happen to them. This is a perfect man. This is a completed man. This is one who has reached the goal. At the end of this, in verse 29, Paul said, Whom we preach, warning every man, because you have to do that today, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. You'll find the word perfect used to describe the kind of person God wants several times in the New Testament. 
to a perfect man, the kind of man that the Lord wants. Now, he describes what that perfection is in that same verse, back to Ephesians 4, in the same 13th verse. To a perfect man, he said, unto the measure of the stature of his fullness. Is that still in verse 13? Till we become, this is the work that is going on, until we all come to a perfect man, which is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Can that ever be? You see, if that can't be, we should quit singing that song, to be like Jesus. Remember that? To be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I want is to be like Jesus. If you want to be like him, we got a lot of laying down, a lot of trash in our lives, a lot of junk to get rid of, a lot of clothes to throw out. Because there's a whole lot of baggage in our life that won't get through a narrow gate. And when he's Lord of your life, you get rid of whatever you have to. You know, God can deal with you firmly. He can deal with you slowly and gently, but he deals with you. If he's not dealing with you this morning about something in your life, you need to be real concerned. But he says, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what I think in this way, what perfect means? It's the reproduction of the original. You plant a grain of corn... What do you get? Bear with me. You get reproductions, don't you? If it grows to its full ear, you plant one, you get many of the same thing. And when you get it full harvest, when it reaches its fullness, what do you do with the corn? You harvest it. You come and get it. That's when Jesus comes. There's a harvest day coming, and the seeds are growing. they got to come to full maturity. They have to reach their intended end. They start out as little bitty soft things that bugs like until they become good kernels of strong corn. And then you harvest it. It's a good picture of what God is doing and what he wants to do with all of us. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In chapter 3, he adds a word to this that would work today. Chapter 3, verse 19. And to know the love of Christ... The love of Christ which passes knowledge. How do you know what passes knowledge? You ever think of that? I do. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. How can you know what's beyond knowledge? Because you cannot by knowing know God. God is revealed by himself to you. It is Jesus who discloses himself to you. Otherwise, all you know is who he was and he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday morning, they say, whenever that was. But when you know him and he is revealed to you, it's because he did that. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father who was in heaven. I thank thee, Father, thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed it unto babes. Only God does. I pray that God would give to you a spirit of wisdom and Revelation in the knowledge of him. But when the knowledge of him comes, you begin to see what he did and what he's like. The word love is given its supreme worth by the word commitment. 
Because if love does not have commitment, it's not love. The idea behind love is commitment. To commit yourself to God doesn't mean you enjoy and you have fun in this Christian life, but you don't quit and you don't draw back because you have committed your way unto the Lord. In a marriage between a man and a woman, do you think it always goes, now when you're first married, it'll always be like that. It's just going to be Google-eyed and touchy-feely your whole just forever until you've been married at least a couple weeks. And then you notice a distraction or a problem. Well, why don't you just divorce? Because you made a commitment. A woman doesn't submit to her husband because he deserves it. She submits to her husband because it's how she serves the Lord. It's not the man. The man's getting the best that can be gotten because a woman loves the Lord more than she loves him. And she loves God enough to submit to him when he doesn't deserve it. And verse vice you know, vice versa. We're sometimes so stubborn and so selfish and so hard-headed and difficult, unrelenting. But until you really submit yourself to God, I'm taking time with this because I have a place I want to go with it. Until you really commit your way into the Lord and you say, Lord, I recognize what you did for me, the immense cost of what you did, how you love me. Jesus committed himself to my salvation. Didn't he? He didn't veer from the left or to the right in order to reach this goal. He didn't call 10,000 angels and he didn't get discouraged on some Galilean hillside, though he cried out with strong tears and crying. He didn't quit. He stayed true because he committed. He said, I came to do my father's will. And he loved the father. And in his commitment to the father, he loved you. So much that he committed himself to us while we were yet sinners. That he died for us. We didn't deserve that. We still don't. But he did it because he loved his father enough to love you. And out of that love, redemption has been wrought. Amazing love, a song once said. How can it be that somebody would die for somebody like me? How can it be that in a lot of marriages that went bad, that one of the two Christians just remained steadfast, loyal to Christ in loving their mate or in living the way you should in this world and being kind and gentle? And you're committed to that. Not just reading about it, hearing sermons about it, but you're committed to that. You are compelled to live and to study and to pray and to read and to show kindness and to fit into wherever God puts you. We all belong somewhere. You're committed to it because that's what love is. For me to love you is to commit myself to you. For you to love me is to commit yourself to me. I mean, you're not a slave of mine. I'm not a slave of yours. But the Bible has a lot of things to say about what brings unity in a church, and that's how we love each other. Look at this verse again. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might what? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And concerning fullness, look at verse 17. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded, how? What I've been talking about, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, because this is revealed to you. You didn't learn this. It's a revelation, a revelation that has an overwhelming influence in your life. Just like the word knowledge in verse 12, the knowledge of Christ is a knowledge that bears great influence on the knower with the object known. What God shows us about him that we see it and we know it has great effect upon our life. Our convictions, our conscience, everything is being formed in us to bring us to loyalty and dedication and commitment to God, which is a way of describing a love for God that supersedes all the love in the world. The tempter comes, and you're committed to Christ. That's what Jesus did. By one man's disobedience, that's Adam. We were made sinners. By one man's obedience, that's Christ. We were all made righteous. Obey, the Greek word hupokuo, means to remain under he committed himself to doing what God wanted. He stayed under this spout where the glory comes out. And the devil couldn't draw him like he did Eve. He couldn't draw him out from under that. He knew in whom he had believed, and he was committed and persuaded. And he stayed there. And because he stayed there, we're here. We're here because he stayed there. He was obedient to commitment. That's how it works. And that's one of the great endearing and enduring components of unity. It is the one supreme component of anybody who has a relationship with Jesus. It's because you love him more than you love your life, more than you love your wife, your family, more than you love anything. In fact, Jesus puts it like this in Luke 14. He says, if you love anybody more than that, you cannot be a disciple. Now, I know the church world wouldn't want to hear that. Not this morning. But it's what the Bible says. You can't put anything, anybody before God, because when you're brought to Christ, this great supreme commitment has to be to God. Your body, your time, your energy, everything you have, it all belongs to him because you willingly give it to him. He doesn't force you. You want him to have it because you recognize the great love wherewith he hath loved us. And the compelling effect of that is for you to love him. That's why faith works by love. We are faithful to God because we love him. I don't want to do anything else. Like the three Hebrew children said, put us in the fire if you want to, but God will get us out of there. But if he, even if he doesn't, we're going to stay faithful. Even if he doesn't, we're committed we're committed to serving him. Now back to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. When we begin to grow up into him in all things, when the great divine change begins to take place in our life, and that perfecting work of the Holy Spirit in taking these arid areas of our personality that being so difficult, he begins to change that, and we begin to surrender we begin to see who we are in light of what he is. We begin to esteem others as better than ourselves. 
We begin to be that loving part that functions in a body that makes it work better. We're not troublemakers. We're not difficult. We're not distant and hard anymore. We're firm in what we believe, but we recognize that, that as a part of what God is doing, we must esteem others. Like in Philippians 2, we must esteem others as better than ourselves. Now, the result of all of this, when this begins to happen, you get verse 14. Now, what happens in verse 14 is that we no longer be like children. Now, what are children? Didn't Jesus say, except you become like a little child? Then he said, don't be like children. Well, one thing about children is that they're very compliant to a, an adult. They used to be. They used to be. When Jesus called the little child to him, the little child, he'd come up and say, well, I don't know about all this. Why should I be on your lap? Why should I let you use me as an object lesson? He came got on his lap. If he held him in his lap or stood there. Jesus said, you've got to humble yourself and surrender yourself to the divine will like this child does. No arguments, no resistance, no excuses, no opinions. Just quietly come and be what he wants. But now here he said, don't be like children in understanding. I don't mean to use the word ignorant in a bad way, but a lot of good people are ignorant of the truth. I don't think we know everything we're supposed to know. Then there's some areas that we would be ignorant. I know that I probably, I'm sure I am. In fact, I can read somewhere back where the pages are still clean in my Bible. I read through the Old Testament last year, and some of those prophetic books, I would read it, and I'd think, whew, I don't know what that means. I would like to, and I will, because the Bible said the Spirit shall show you things to come. So there's a day coming this will be revealed. But children are usually defined as less than knowledgeable. How many of you know you can't argue with a child? Now, I've been a parent, you know, and now I'm a grandparent, and I've learned, especially as a grandparent, you can't argue with children. You just tell them what to do. You can't argue with them. They don't know what you're talking about. They don't understand. Well, he doesn't want us to be like that because when you stay like that, when you stay unlearned and uninformed, you're easily deceived or easily led astray. Most of the cults in America today came out of institutional churches because they were easily sidetracked. Just like today, a lot of people can hear a radio program and somebody mentioned Jesus and there are those that, oh, it's good, they said Jesus. Well, of course they said Jesus. All cults use scripture. Every cult has a line of truth in it. That's like you take a Pepsi and put two drops of strychnine in it. You want to drink it? Looks like Pepsi. Smells like Pepsi. Tastes like the devil. Because it'll kill you. So you have to be discerning. But children are not discerning. They go by how they feel. They go by what they think. They just are glued to their passions. We said that we don't want to be any more like children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
How do you know you're not being tossed this morning by every wind of doctrine? As I said earlier, you better find out what you believe. I'll tell you what I believe. You search the scriptures and you see if that's what it says. Because once you're standing on the scripture and not some Methodist Presbycostal system or because of some preacher and you think, oh, if I just do what he does and say what he says, I'm all right. That's not the way it works. Such loyalty belongs to Christ. This is his word. You must determine if it's his word. That's why there is an anointing that abides within you that gives confirmation to the scripture. This is what you get convicted of. This is where your faith comes from. We're not interested in anybody's opinion. There's no market anymore for opinion. Get on eBay and see who's buying opinions. There aren't any. Our mouths are to be shut when we come to the cross. We come to Christ. And we listen and we learn. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, the psalmist said, that I may walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. We're talking here this morning about this deeper work that's taking place in those that are willing that draws us into union with Christ until he has more meaning to you than even your own life. And the joy of being a part of whatever he's doing, whatever he's doing, just the fact that you're in it and you're involved in it is great. But children don't do that. Children want to go play. My children and my grandchildren said, Daddy or Papa, you talk too long. I asked one this morning. I said, do you want Papa to talk long or short this morning? He said, short. Because <laughs> children would do that. They say, well, my mommy says the same thing at home. Well, all right, that's, I, can't, <laughs> I can't argue with that. In other words, we learn the truth so that we're no longer people followers, personality followers, but followers of Christ being led in that direction by ministry. It's not us you follow, it's Jesus. If we don't preach about Christ, we're not preaching what the message is about, what the Bible's about. It's Jesus. And where we're going is verse 15 of chapter 4. But speaking the truth, how? In love. Speaking the truth in love to those especially who need it, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, that would be Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Is that how we grow? Grow up into whom? Up into Christ. That's what we've been talking about. In all things. Verse 16, from whom the whole body... Fitly framed together. That's an interesting word because it has to do with unity. Fitly framed together. How many of you still remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 1 that we used as a text when we started this message? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 about coming together. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all do what? Speak the same things. How can that be? Look where we all came from. We're all different. How can we speak the same things? 
Well, I don't agree with this. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, we both can't be right. Somebody's wrong. Oh, we're both wrong. Now, I believe in Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith, receive. Not to doubt for disputations or disputings and arguments and all of that. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself and what he allows and so forth. But he says in verse 10, that you all speak the same things and there be no divisions among you. Be no divisions among you. That's a devastating thing to the power of God. In this very church in Corinth, there were those who followed Apollos, those who followed Paul, those who followed Peter, and those who followed Jesus. When they came together for the Lord's table to the agape feast. They had a group there and a group over here. They didn't mix. They didn't care about each other. They really didn't care to even know each other. They didn't mingle. They just sort of, people lived in the same city but had nothing to do with each other. One church. They didn't have different churches in. They didn't have big buildings to meet in. They had to meet in homes. That's the only place there was. They didn't have civic centers in Jerusalem or in Corinth. So they met the way that they did. But there was no unity and there's no harmony in that city. And thus in church in, in Corinth, they had apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They had apostles and prophets and gifts of healings and gifts of miracles. They had all the power that we crave for, and yet there were those who were never healed. Remember that? He said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and some sleep. How could they be sickly if they had gifts of healings in the church? Because of their unwillingness to love each other and to be a part of each other. That'll destroy your faith. You can get prayed for by everybody in the country. It doesn't work unless you're in harmony with what the Lord wants. But he said, I pray that you all come together, speak the same things, that be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment or opinions there. Now go back to Ephesians 4. See, this is what we come to when the unity that we have with Christ begins to flow through us toward each other. I want to draw a picture on the board. I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. And verse 22. This is you. Let me write up here. Some of you can see this on the DVD and some of you can't. You and me. All right. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22, he's talking about a church, the church, the church that God wants. And in describing it in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, he uses these words. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed. Now that's a picture of a structure being built. He said, fitly framed, groweth together into a holy temple in the Lord. Now that's us individually, a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built. The process should be going on now right now, that we are being built by God into something that is holy. Are you with me? Holy. 
in whom you also are builded together. Actually, it means being built. It's a process. Are being built for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Does that mean that God is in the process of making his body the way he wants it to be so he can come down and manifest himself in it? Wouldn't that be good? How was that to go to church service that God met you every time you went? And you went home going, whoo. Or you went home going, whoo. Or you went home going, ugh. Or you went home going, What if every time we came together, there was some manifestation of his presence? I know some of you go home, about every time you go home is yes. Or, that's some work to do. Healthy conviction. Healthy edification. Something that just makes the whole thing what it ought to be. Oh, praise God. But a church, a holy habitation of God, and the word together is used there, fitly framed together, that you all may be together in the same mind, the same judgment, that he's going to put us together into a holy group of people that are being refined by the refiner and being cleansed by the cleanser and being made the kind of people he wants us to be made. Let me tell you something. You get a taste of that and nothing else will ever satisfy. You taste that and nothing else will ever satisfy. You got to go to 1 Peter now, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what you get. This church, this refined together being built church. He said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also, because you're a building block or a piece or a part or a member of the body, play like this morning that you're all stones. Now, you're not rocks because you can't put rocks together. Old jagged rocks don't fit together because they got too much flesh in them. And so the word becomes like a hammer. Didn't the Bible say the word is like a hammer or like a fire? A hammer knocks away all the stuff that doesn't fit, and a fire burns away the dross. Well, anyway, let's play like that's being done, even though in each of us there's a lot of, uh, let's just call this wood, hay, and stubble, a lot of junk in here that really hinders me and you. Just some things about you that just turn me completely off. I can't hardly stand to be around you. You sing too loud. You talk too much. I wish you wouldn't clap. Go over, stand over here and clap your hands. But anyway, every man, let me start with me. Every man must have a relationship with God. Should he? He's got to have that or he's not God's. And every man needs from God something that comes from him. He must speak to you and you must speak to him. I must be joined to people like this and people who are having similar experiences, different degrees of it different variations of it, but this is what we got to have. And here's these two rocks. We got a gap. Something's wrong. Oh, I know what this is. This person here must have a relationship with me, right? And I guess I'll do something about you. Is this kind of work ever hindered in us? 
do we ever not get along? Do you ever wish you were somewhere else instead of in that person's aisle? Anybody ever pull up in your driveway to come and visit you and you look out and say, oh. <laughs> You've never done that, have you? But anyway, here we are. This is you. This is me. I came from out yonder and you came from over there. You did it your way. We did. I was in the Christian church. We had no creed but the Bible. Didn't do it much with it, but that was our creed. And you came over here, you were whatever you were. We came together. It's hard for this flow back and forth to work. Some people would rather break off from everything and have my own little relationship to God. I know God, he knows me. Well, that is good because you should have a relationship with the Lord. There should come from heaven this divine revelation and knowledge and understanding the things that only God can give. Your relationship is God to you and your relationship is you to God. You got to have that to be or to become what he wants. And because he doesn't leave you out there like the Lone Ranger and he doesn't make some independent cruise-o-matic out of you, he puts you somewhere. And who he puts you with is who he builds you with. And whether you like it or not, you're somehow stuck with me and I with you. I didn't ask any of you to come here. And I sure didn't ask to come here. We were brought here. We have to realize that we were brought here not because something grabbed us by the back of our coat and flew us down here and, and dropped us off. We had this urgency, this urge and this something. Where we were, the nest was being broken up and we were led somewhere else. And we immediately realized, I've had folks move here and say, I didn't know people here did that. I didn't know people didn't do that. I didn't know that. Well, there's a lot of things we don't know. They're not very far along. Maybe you can encourage them. You can be an encourager. That's what verse 16 says. Let's read verse 16. Keep your finger in 1 Peter 2. While you're there, let me read for you in Ephesians chapter 4. And then I'll come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 16, he says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, grows according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. There's a lot of words there, and a lot of that runs together, and we don't always get what that's saying, but I'm going to try to show you, at least by this illustration, that we also as living stones are being built together, notice in verse 5 of 1 Peter 2 now, as living stones to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. When you put all of these stones together, folks, 1 Peter 2 describes it as a spiritual house, not just a religious gathering of professing Christians, but a spiritual house. On Ephesians 2.22, a holy habitation. If it's not holy, why would it be inhabited? If it's not spiritual, it's just another name on the front out there about some denominational system. It goes no further than that 
because it has drawn the line. We won't do that. We won't go that far. But people like that because there's no threat. There's no growth, but there's no threat. But when God brings people from where they were because they want all that God has, he begins to bring us together. He begins to teach us. We struggle. We, I don't know. But see, every time we meet together, we get identified. Fellowship does that all the time. You're being taught you got to love your brother, then you have a men's meeting. You didn't know that brother was like that. Well, I was in his group. I didn't think he would ever shut up. And he'd just talking, and I think, man. And finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I said, why don't you let somebody else talk? And he was offended by it. I felt pretty good about it, to tell you the truth, because I haven't been refined very much. You were bold, but you didn't do any good. Taking a while, isn't it? Then maybe when you go home, you get convicted about that mouth. And about those feelings you got, you got to speak your mind. You can start thinking, not always, not always. The work that God's doing is to make you, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. What's he like? I am meek and lowly in heart. You want to be like that? Are you all still in here? All right. So we got this thing here where God begins to clean up some of this wood, hay, and stubble. I don't have quite as much as he used to. Oh, let me get down here. The refiner's fire begins doing a work in me about you. You see, my relationship to God is no good if it's wrong with you. In fact, I can cut this relationship off if I don't have a good relationship with you. I can cut it off so that I don't have one. Let's see if we can find that. Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be known on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day of our trespasses as we forgive others. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, what did he comment on? If you won't forgive, you're not forgiven. If you're not forgiven, does God just hear you anyway? You justify what you did. You justify what you said. I'll tell you one thing. Nobody's going to run over me. Good, you're tough. You're bad. You're alone, but you're bad. <laughs> or sin. Is it sin to not forgive? Wait a minute. Jesus said, what things have you desire when you pray? Believe that you have received them. And when you pray, forgive. For if you will not forgive others their sins against you, their trespass against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Or Luke 18, a man who was forgiven a whole bunch would not forgive his brother nothing. And Jesus said, so shall my father do unto you if you from your heart will not forgive others. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to feel like that about somebody else. Or about the preacher. You're going to have many opportunities to blame somebody in this ignorant age that we're in where everybody's a victim. Did you know that nobody's wrong anymore? It's always somebody else's fault. Not with God. That kind of ignorant psychology has come into the church where everybody's sins are to be blamed on somebody else. Your sin is your wrong. Well, I wouldn't have been like that if I had been raised better. You've been sitting here long enough to know the truth between right and wrong. You can overcome all that junk in your past. 
God can not only forgive you, but he can cleanse you. But if you want to sit back and just, well, it's not my fault. My mother threw pablum in my face when I was a baby. You can do that if you want to. You can feel good about that, but you don't know the Lord. You don't have a relationship with the Lord. You're a poor victim. The word cleanses nothing in your life. But here we are. You and me, we're brought together here in Shelby Town. Me and uh, you. And we have to forgive. We have to not only forgive, we have to forget. We have to draw nigh to God. We have to submit ourselves to each other in the fear of the Lord. We have to love God. We have to love each other. We have to have a commitment amongst us. Don't we? If we want God to see us as a holy habitation, as a spiritual body, we've got to master these things. There must be a surrender of my will and my attitudes and my actions and reacts. I've got to surrender to God. Look how many daddies in this room right here could be a better daddy if you'd do that. Uh-oh, we're meddling now. Look how many young people could be the kind of person at home they should be as they grow up if they would just do it. I remember teaching school that one parent said, Brother Hamblin, could I talk to you? Yes, ma'am. Would you talk to my daughter, Teresa? Her name is Teresa. I thought, man, this is a darling of the whole group. She won't make up her bed, won't clean up her room. She doesn't have time to do anything because she's going to all these Bible studies. I said, I'll take care of that. And I did. I told her, I said, if you can't pass your test at home, you fail out here. I don't care what you look like and what you sound like. It's home's proven ground. That's the proving ground of ministry and of character. Home, H-O-M-E. And God puts that in the package. It's just part of what you get. This is what makes you say, I don't think I want to come back. I don't want to go to that kind of meeting. They preach too long. That's your problem. You've been identified. You've been singled out for a slap. Holy chastisement then. It's God doing something. Now, let me ask you something. How are we going to keep these rocks from falling apart? Mortar. Let's put mortar. Let's draw little things like this to reference mortar, okay? See you folks out there with CDs, you can't see what I'm doing. What would we, in this morning's illustration about bringing a body together and what it takes for it to be like God wants it to be, what would we call mortar? Can you go to Colossians again? We'll come back to Ephesians for our close, but to Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Colossians 2 and verse 19 and not holding the head, which is the cornerstone, that's Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Now, before I get to this joints and bands, what is a joint? Now, be careful. 
A joint could be a place where bad people go to get a funny feeling. A joint can be something you smoke. But a joint here is where two parts come together. It's a joint. Probably in most any kind of vernacular of the building world out there, a joint is where two parts meet of some sort, connected by something. Plumbing or building or something. A joint is where two parts meet. Well, in the church, in this metaphor of the building, it's where two parts meet. They meet together. They often, so often break apart because they're so independent. They're really not committed to each other. But until God does this work in them, and then they get committed to each other. Now, this commitment in chapter 3 from these joints and bands in Colossians 3, in verse 12 through 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Boy, what kind of church is that? Forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on what? Love. And he goes on to say, which is the bond that brings completeness and fulfillment. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this mortar is love. Your willingness, because of God's influence, to not only tolerate me, but to commit yourself, when necessary, to my well-being. How would you esteem others as better than yourself if you didn't? How would you? It'd be like in... Philippians 2 in verse 3. I'm just going to go back and read that because it's two pages back. Listen to this. Let nothing be done through vainglory or strife, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than themselves, looking not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That doesn't mean to try to get what somebody else has got, but to make sure they're blessed too. From the very beginning of the church when men gave up everything they have sold all their goods and gave it to the church so everybody could have something that same kind of a vein runs through the church even today in a similar way not that you have to sell everything you have but if it came to that we could it's that we care about how others are doing we care about that person who didn't look good maybe on a Wednesday night kind of sad or something so we pray or we go to that person and say are you okay can I do anything? Why would you care? You just do. You're a Christian. God makes you care about other people, even people that might have offended you. Talked about you once. You prove how much you love you have for God by how much you love that person and are willing to not only forgive them, but to help them. That's a big change. You won't find that everywhere. You won't find it in very many places, but it's here. It's in this book. Caring about people, loving about people. That's what makes us drawn to each other. Our friends are amongst us. Besides my mother, nobody loves me more than my family and my family. I could count on people here if I was stranded on a cliff, hanging by a piece of fishing line. If it's big enough. 
I'm sure I could get somebody here to stop whatever they were doing, come get me. There might be one who say, well, he got himself out there, let him get himself out of it. <laughs> He's got so much faith, let him get it fixed. Or you can just simply say that God is doing this work. One of the things that God gives me, not only a love for him, but he shows me that this person here, me, I don't deserve to be loved the way God loves me. I don't deserve the kind of friends I have. I don't deserve it. But I have been given it by his grace. Graciously given to me. There's nobody more blessed in all the world than I am. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being changed into the same image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being changed. Did Jesus love others? Did he walk great distances, tireless days and nights to minister? He was doing his father's will. And did he not say, as the father has sent me, so send I you? Of course he did. Therefore, it is my mission not only to study the life of Christ, but somebody teach me about it too so that it can enhance both of them. So that as I come into the church and I begin to grow up into Jesus, I begin to see who he was. And I look at the way he loved people, the way he ministered to people, the way he prayed, the way he did things. I want to be like that. Make me like that. I might not minister like him. I couldn't. He was God. But I can minister to some degree, whatever he's called me to do. I don't have a great worldwide ministry, but what I got right here is so good for me. I've been around the world. Every time I leave town, it looks better. Oh, I'm serious. I mean it with all my heart. If I even turn the radio on, I think I got to go to church. I got to get away from that. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way it's supposed to work. Finally, brethren, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, do well, go well, be well, be perfect. Be perfect. Oh, I can't be perfect. Well, then that is a lie, right verse. If he said be perfect, then be perfect. Let God do the work and he's taking you somewhere. Let him continue to do it. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. And when he is with you, listen to what happens. When he is with you, the body begins to minister to itself. We begin to receive from above and share it with each other because we love each other. There's this desire that God has. The joints and the bands begin to minister as they are ministered to by the Lord, having nourishment from heaven in Ephesians 4. As this comes into us, it begins to show us, make us, enable us, equip us, and we begin to do what he said in verse 12, serving each other for the work of service or ministry. We begin to serve each other. We begin to take a different view of each other. We begin to have a different attitude about each other. We no longer go to meetings with our arms folded. I don't know what they're going to talk about this morning. We don't do that no more. 
I came here to hear and to learn and to contribute. If you get a chance to do that. This is what's going to cause, in Ephesians 4, 16, this is what's going to cause the increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. It's not a nifty preacher. It's not a nifty system. It is the working of the many various parts of his body as they are growing in the Lord. They begin to minister to each other. They forgive. They speak the truth in love. They help. They do whatever they have to do because I care. And this is one of the ways that a church becomes a body that functions like Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, minister to us this morning that your words might become life to our flesh, that we would truly walk in newness of life, that we might be the kind of people that you're working on. That as we begin to be manifested as your sons into this world, as they begin to see the work of God in us, they will believe in what you've said. I ask for that work to continue to take place until we're all reaching maturity here. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.